Well, um, before we get too serious, um, have you tried the new coffee? Yeah? And you've, you've met the girls and Chris at the bar? They're there just waiting for you to um, saddle up and order your coffee, so... Um, sorry? All that stuff, yeah. Um, uh, let's pray. Um, there's a few people we need to pray for before we go any further. So if you would bow your heads with me and bow your hearts before him who cares, let's pray, hey? Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your goodness to us. And, and we do, we do, Father, as we have just sung, we do. We just hunger for your presence in our lives. Lord, we know you never leave us nor forsake us. We know your presence is with us moment by moment. But Lord, I just pray you'd make us more aware, with more sensitive to your leading, more open, Lord God, to hear your voice and more willing, Lord, to surrender our wills to yours. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd have your way in our lives. And we thank you for our family. We thank you for being with us and watching over us. Thank you for your great sufficiency in our lives and your promise to never abandon us. Thank you that you're our God, that you're our healer our restorer, the one that we can turn to in time of need. Bring our sister Corey before you, Father, and just ask, Lord God, that uh, your healing hand would be upon her. Thank you, Father, that you would do this great work in her body. And Lord, you'd just comfort her heart. Thank you for Saskia, who is with her and just comforting her. And I thank you, Father, that you always place your people in the right place at the right time. Be with Cheryl and comfort her heart in this time. Pray again you'd be with Wendy, Lord, and with Max. And we thank you, Father, to you again. You are the, our great physician. We ask for your healing hand upon their bodies. Above it all, Father, we just thank you that you are our, our sufficiency and that we need not fear. And we can trust ourselves and our loved ones to you, knowing that you, the God of heaven, will do what is right. Thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Ah, that's a confidence we have, isn't it? It's a great confidence we have. Well, good morning. And um, if you haven't been here this morning before, welcome and trust that God will bless you and encourage you and, and that uh, you will meet some people you've not known before. And, uh, and that's the wonderful thing about church. The thing I've, I've realized about church is that if, almost every week God is starting not just new relationships, he's starting eternal relationships in our lives. Have you ever stopped to think about that? You know, you, you come along to church and you meet someone in the body of Christ that you've never met before. You're not just going to know them for this little space and time. You're going to know them throughout all eternity. It's amazing, isn't it? That God, God is building a forever family and, uh, and that's why we come together to, to hone the skills of what it is, you know. Of course it is to love one another and 
to be compassionate and kind and caring and, and just want to be a part of one another's life. And uh, it's what family is, right? So welcome, family, and it's great to see you, regardless of what the weather may be saying to us. Um, it's always sunny in Albany, isn't it? Yes? Good. Well, over the past weeks, months now, I know I say this every week, we've been looking at what it is to be alive in Christ. We've done a few different series now and they're all focusing on the reality of what it is to live in Christ and what it is to be able to be an example not only to one another but to be a light to this world, to, to shine the light of Christ's great love for humanity, to be alive is what it's all about. And we developed a little confession that we were saying every week and that confession has now become our prayer. And that has always been my hope because what we learn in God's word becomes, yes, a confession, a truth that we know, but then we make it a prayer of our heart because when we make it a prayer of our heart, we're saying, God, do this in me, aren't we? It's not just something we know. And so, should we pray our prayer together? Let's pray our prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, that we are your children and that you are our God, that you guide us according to your truth, the truth of your son, the truth of your word. Pray, Father, that you would teach us to pray, that we would be a people who wholeheartedly, earnestly desire your presence, your purpose, your blessings in all the things of our lives. Lord, that we ask you to search our hearts to search our lives, to change us, to expose our sinfulness, to restore us and keep us from the things, Lord, that would keep us from you. And may, Lord, this great gospel message that saves, transforms and glorifies sinful men be the most important thing that we have to share with this world. And Lord, let it move our hearts, let it change our lives. Father, May we simply be, never be, I should say, satisfied with a complacent spirituality that produces no living for Christ. May that never be enough. Lord, we're finished with careless living. We want a faith of substance that takes us beyond the four walls of this church to live a, lo a godly life with great influence in this world. Lord, we're ready and we're willing to exchange any self-indulgence for a self-denying, life-transforming faith with you. Father, we're ready to live for you. And all the church says amen. We, um, again, uh, this last couple of weeks that I've been with you, um, We've been looking at Paul's statements. I call them, you know, Paul's I beseech thee statements. And uh, he uses that phrase um, quite a few times. Um, and so this morning we're in 1 Corinthians. So if you'll turn to 1 Corinthians with me, um, it's in the first chapter. Um, and as you go there, we're in verse 10 this morning for Paul's I beseech thee statement. Um, the book of First Corinthians is is a is about is the Apostle Paul bringing correction to some very non-Christian behaviours in that church. 
But, but what you will see, and I encourage you to go back and read the earlier verses, what you will see in this opening chapter, that before he begins this, this work of, of correction and setting things right, he lovingly reminds believers that we are all, in fact, saints who belong to God. We are his children. That's where our prayer starts, doesn't it? Thank you, Lord, that you are our God. Thank you, Lord, that we are your children. And what the writer, what Paul does is he reminds us that we are a part of a universal, eternal family of God. And just as a caring, loving, earthly father um, has to sometimes say, son or daughter, you're not behaving like one of us. You've had that said to you? I know I mentioned it a few weeks ago. I'll never forget that time that dad pulled me aside and said, Chris, you're a fisher. Act like one. You know? And God does that to us sometimes, doesn't he? You know? Lovingly, you know, God is here saying that you are, you are my children, but you are called to be saints. You're called to be saints of God, you know? Effectively, what he's doing is he's reminding them about the goodness of God towards their lives. And we all need that from time to time, don't we? We need to be reminded that we are his children, that we are someone that has received this incredible, this great gift of salvation, someone that has experienced the grace of God, someone who knows and has experienced the peace of God, you know, it's, it's, it's his goodness. And he's doing that here in these opening verses, reminding us of his great love. He's reminding us of the great worth and the, and the incredible value that he places upon all of us, every single one of us. Isn't that wonderful? You know, the incredible worth that God reminds us about. And it's essential. This is all essential. If I am going to be confronted by and deal with any of the sometimes less than Christ-like habits that I allow to become a part of my lives, my lives, my life, our lives, it's essential we understand that God loves us and he wants to do this in us and he values us. He loves us more than any other. He values us more than any other. And he's not going to let us slip into any destructive patterns. That's who God is. You know, my hope must always be based upon God's goodness. And that's why this book starts there. You know, this allows me, it does, it allows me to believe that no matter what mess I may allow myself to get into, the ultimate truth of my existence is that I truly belong to God, that I truly am his child. Yeah, I, I know at best I'm frail. I know at best I'm feeble. But it's God's mercies, isn't it? God's mercies, they're tender. God's, God's mercies, they're firm. That they're, that they're there always to the very end, as the scripture tells us, they are new when? Every single morning. Now all of this, I say all of this, and this is not to say that this gives me a license 
to be able to live in some way a, a, a second rate or a compromised Christian life where God becomes little more than a, a fireman who comes in to help when I fall down and pick me up when I fall down or something like, no, it's, no, 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 it's not that at all. It's, it's, it's me being receptive to God's word. It's, it's, it's me allowing God to perform his work in my life it's me willing to be changed. It's me knowing that there is a supernatural dynamic at play in my life all the time. Again, isn't that incredible? Isn't that wonderful? Who doesn't want that? Is anyone here that doesn't want that? To know that God is good, to know that God loves you, to know that God will not abandon you to your own selfish ways, to know that God's supernatural work is taking place within your life. Who doesn't want that? Who wants that? Yes. <laughs> we all want that. So he begins... And verse 13, I know I said verse 10, but he begins in verse 13 by saying, is Christ divided? Now, I want us to note something here. This church at Corinth, there's an awful lot wrong with it. They got a lot of problems, you know. And I'm not here to focus on those things this morning. But they were a church, they were a church that... Well, there was nothing less than elitist snobbery going on in that church. There, there was serious immorality going on in that church. They were taking one another to court. They were suing one another. They, their marriages were a mess. They were getting drunk even in church. The spiritual gifts were not edifying the church. They were selfishly exercising them and it just went on and on and on. They were a mess. They were a smug, prideful, self-indulgent people that were unwilling to recognize and deal with their own sin. They were a mess, right? They really were. So many problems. So much to be dealt with. But where does Paul start? He starts with this issue of division. And, and, and that to me, for some reason, that, that's important to note, you know. Because if we're not standing together as a church, then all those other things, real, well, really. Or, or the other way to look at it, if, if everything else is a reflection of the fact that we're not standing together, right? You can look at it from both ends, but it's important to note, this is where he starts. The church and all of its problems, it seems, and somehow are related to the fact that they're not standing together. They're not being the body of Christ. They're not living for one another as Christ lived and died for them. This is where Paul starts. This, this word that he uses there, um, is Christ divided? The Greek word, it means to separate or to distinguish one part from another. And Paul's asking the question, 
Is it possible to divide him? That is Christ. Is it possible to divide him up so that one part is with one person and another part is with somebody else? He's not asking, is it a reality? He's asking, is this at all possible for Christ to be divided? And of course, the answer is what? It's no. Of course, it's no. Christ and his church are are one, are one. But it's such a necessary question. It really is. Why? Well, it's because humanity or humans are plagued with an age-old problem. You know what it is? You know what it is? We have trouble getting along. That's the age-old problem. We have trouble getting along with each other. You know, look around. There's always conflict. There's always arguments. There's always fightings in this world. And yes, we would hope that it would be different in the family of God. And it should be different in the family of God. But the truth is, the truth is that from the moment, Acts chapter 2, from the moment that God's spirit came upon that diverse group of people gathered in in that upper room 2,000 years ago and the church was born from that moment on, Christians have been so often at odds with one another and certainly it's to our shame, right? Certainly it is. Factionalism has always existed. In fact, in Galatians, in the fruit of the Spirit, factionalism is actually one of the marks of the works of the flesh. But it has always existed. And the reason it exists is because, more often than not, yet yet people are fervent in their enthusiasm for Christ, and that is good, but they're often misguided with their fervor. And that is not good, Right? Again, it's been happening from the beginning. It always has. You know, you see the church born powerfully by the power of God's Spirit. They go out into the street. Peter begins to preach. 3,000 people get saved. The church is alive. It's vibrating. Everybody's excited about what's going to happen. And the next thing they know, the church begins to spread throughout from Jerusalem, throughout the world. And, you know, and suddenly Peter's up on his rooftop. He's having, a, he's having a good old nap. And all of a sudden God speaks to him. And you know, there's a knock on his door. You know the story, right? It's from Cornelius, a servant from the household of Cornelius. He is not a Jew. He leads Peter to his house. He preaches the gospel. The Spirit of God falls upon these non-Jewish people. And suddenly, they, Peter, you know, Peter's gobsmacked by this. That the fact that God would save people that aren't actually Jews, Gentiles. Guess what happens? Church gets divided over it. They start arguing amongst themselves. This can't be right. You know, God's going to save just, just us, isn't that? That's how Christians often think. Just us. We're the, we're, the, we're the holy ones. We're the set apart ones. You know, and that happened right back there. That division was there. And once, once they sorted out, okay, this gospel is for all of mankind. This gospel doesn't matter where you come from. Doesn't matter what station in life. Doesn't matter what privileges or, or, or what's going against. It doesn't matter. The gospel is for all of humanity. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. To whom? To just the Jews? No, to whomever, whomever will believe. 
Whomever will believe. They worked that out. And so you know what they did? They said, okay, so the gospel's for everyone. But if you're not a Jew, you, then you really need to be circumcised. Well, you really need to observe these Jewish customs. You know, that was, that was what happened. Paul, everywhere Paul went speaking the gospel of grace, these Judaizers were coming behind him trying to add to the gospel, trying to divide the body of Christ. You're not, you can't be really, really saved unless you do this or unless you do that. And it's always been the same. It's factionalism. It's always been in the church. You jump ahead. You jump ahead to the fourth century. You know, and great persecutions had befallen the church. And there was a period in the church where it was demanded of church leaders to surrender up all of their scriptures, all of their copies of the scriptures. And many of the church leaders, um, to save their lives, surrendered up the scriptures and they were burnt. Now, there was a group called the Donatists who existed in that time. And they saw this very fervent Christian believers. And they saw this as an absolute betrayal of the faith. In fact, they saw it that as such cowardness should never be rewarded by entrusting these people to the word of God or trusting the word of God to these people ever again. And they got so insular in that they began to believe that they alone guarded and they alone preserved the purity of the church. I read one Donatist quote here and he spoke of the church saying this and what he was doing, he was talking about their own particular group. He was saying that the church was the ark of Noah. It was well tarred inside and out. It was watertight. It kept within itself the good water of baptism and it kept out the defiling waters of the world, seeming like a great statement, doesn't it? But in other words, what they were doing is they were becoming a closed community. They were becoming a faction unto themselves and they would only accept those who they believed were righteous. They only accepted those who they believed were worthy to be entrusted or handle the word of truth. They certainly had enthusiasm and further, but it was misguided, wasn't it? You know, it was Augustine who understood what God's grace is about. He was a Catholic, but he understood what God's grace was about. And, and he responded, I love this quote of Augustine. He said, the clouds roll with thunder. In other words, you hear thunder, everybody hears it. It's undeniable, right? He says, the clouds roll with thunder that the house of the Lord shall be built throughout the whole earth. But these frogs, referring to the Donatists, these frogs, they sit in their marsh and they croak, we are the only Christians. No. He understood God's grace. 
He understood that the church is not a body of morally perfect people, but rather a place where helpless humanity can find forgiveness, where helpless humanity can find redemption, and then the gradual transforming work of the Spirit of God can work within our lives, God's grace. He would say, yes, the church is holy, but only because within the church, the Holy Spirit works through the appoint, by the appointed means of grace to transform human lives. In other words, Christ's church is centered, sustained, and kept by the power of the Holy Spirit, not the acts of man. The acts of man will only ever serve to divide the church. And that's what was happening in Corinth. That's what's been happening in the church throughout its history. So the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, now I beseech you. Got to our statement, right? I beseech you. As we have noted the two previous times that we were together, on this, it carries this. I beseech you, carries the idea of someone calling them you near to them. It's a strong call, it's a pleading call, it's a, a begging call. It's like someone has so important to say to you, and they draw in near and near to you. And with compelling voice, they say, Listen to what I have to say. And what the scripture is saying here. When it says beseeches, I beseech you. It beseeches us this morning. Beseeches us this morning. Here's our verse. 1 Corinthians 1.10. It beseeches us this morning by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that we all speak the same thing and that there be no division amongst you but that you perfectly be joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. The Spirit of God leans into our direction today and says this is of the utmost importance. And it is, isn't it? I'm sure you've heard the phrase conquer and divide, right? Well, I said it wrong, didn't I? You divide and conquer. If, if you read back over the, over the first verses, the nine verses of this chapter, and again, I encourage you to do so, it's the most incredible portrayal of the church according to God, of where God has placed us. It speaks about our high and holy position that Christ has raised us up to. And God has enriched us with wisdom and knowledge and spiritual gifts. And, and the hope of his coming has born, been born in our hearts. And we've been given the, the guarantee of God's faithfulness, the work of Christ to present us blameless before his presence every one of us has been called into this common fellowship it's the richest of introductions it really is so what have we got in common what we've got in common we have the promise of God's calling in this divine fellowship this, this, this glorious hope And Satan hates that. He he hates that. He hates that you have this promise. 
He hates that you are so secure in the eternal family of Christ and he wants to divide us. He wants to divide it. He wants to polarize us. He wants us to lose sight of the richness of our common salvation and get us turning on each other based upon all the non-essential things. His strategy is to divide and to conquer, but ours must be to unite and to consolidate according to truth. Isn't that right? This is how we do it. We major on the majors and we don't allow the minors to divide us. Look, look, look at the plea. I beseech you, this is of the utmost importance, speak the same thing, that there may be no division amongst you. Be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. He said, let there be no division amongst you. That, that word division is schisms. In the Greek, the idea of the Greek is to rent or to tear. And so Paul's plea is that they are not, we need to stop ripping each other apart. Stop tearing up the body of Christ is what he's saying, but rather be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. Now this time the word he uses there, same, joined together, it, it, it's, a, it's a medical term in fact that describes the knitting together, the knitting together of, of, hum, of a broken bone. Be knit together. So what Paul is saying in these verses is stop ripping one another apart, but rather knit together. You know, Peter, Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, he would say, finally, and I love it, it's a finally, all of you have, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. And Paul would say again in the Philipp to the Philippians in chapter 2 and verse 2, he would say, Com complete my joy. The Apostle Paul says, this, this, just, this just does it all for me. Complete my joy by being of the, here it is again, the same mind, having the same love, being of, of full accord and, and, and of one mind. It, look, the incredible thing about this passage is, that you're sitting there going, yeah, I know this, right? I, I know this. And that's the incredible thing. We know this. We know that unity is so important to God for his church. In fact, God says in Proverbs chapter 6, in, in verse 19, that God hates, what does he hate? A few things there. But he says he hates those that sow discord amongst the brethren. Is it any wonder that all of the New Testament writers lift this plea before the heart of the, of the church, simply saying, get along with one another. Get along. And please note, it's not a condemning comment here, but rather it's that plea, right? It's, it's that plea of God to unite on the basis, on the basis of what? On the basis of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's enough for us. That's enough for us to get it together. See, 
this call for singleness of heart is founded on nothing less than the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone, he alone is the basis for our unity to one another. We don't need to look for any other reason, you know. And why is that? It's because, because he has placed us in this body, this body of believers in this eternal family. He has placed us in his church and he is the head. He is the head. And our mutual submission to his rule over us individually and over us corporately is because of who he is. What does this mean? What does this mean? It means that you and I as believers have to have, should develop, and we should just have. I know sometimes we have to develop it. But we should have the same attitude of heart towards each other as Jesus Christ has towards us. That's what it means. One mind and with one voice, in doing that, we will glorify God, our Savior. How, do, how will men know that we are his disciples? How? By the love that we have one for another. That's what Jesus said. You see, no one can command anyone to get along with somebody else. That's why sometimes preaching this message is futile. You know? I'll say it again. No one can command anyone get to get along with someone else. I can't convince you. I can't guilt you into it. I can't persuade you. No, no. It will only take place... When you are persuaded in your heart and in your mind that this is the type of person that Jesus wants me to be. When you become persuaded of that and that becomes the driving force. I want you to stop and think about it for, for a moment. It's completely contrary for Christians not to get along. I, I, I know I said... Humans have been plagued by this problem that we don't get along. But we're not just humans. We've been born again by the Spirit of God who dwells within us. And I'll say it again. It is completely contrary for Christians to not get along. And Paul here highlights that by reminding believers that we have a common identity in Jesus Christ. Christ, quite frankly, to be divided is to deny the very fact of who we are. It really is. We're brothers and sisters. We're family. Paul will say to these Corinthians in chapter 12, in verse 13, he said, For by one spirit we have been baptized into how many bodies? Into one body. He will go on and say in the 25th verse that there should be no schisms in the body but that the members should have the same care one for another. And where one member suffers, all members suffer with it. And where one member is honoured, then all members should rejoice with them. We have a spiritual bond as brothers and sisters. And just as we value, just as we value our biological families, you know, so too shall we consider one another. Think about it. 
And also recognize this constant reference here to oneness coming from Paul. Speak the same thing. Let there be no division amongst you. Be, be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. Have you ever been in one of those family meetings? They're not really meetings, they're squabbles. But have you ever been in one of those family meetings where, where no one agrees? You know, you've got to pull everybody together and nobody agrees. Everyone is voicing different opinions about what to do and where to go and how to get it done, right? How do you come away from that? There's a few smiles. You know what I'm talking about. You come away frustrated, don't you? And nothing gets done. And the church family, it's exactly the same. We are to come together in agreement as one. Now, now please, don't misunderstand this. That, that doesn't mean that we're clones of one another. It doesn't mean we're called to be simply clones that re, are regurgitating the same mindless script that we should all dress alike, sound alike, walk alike, you know, and, and that we should never be asking questions. No, most certainly not. That's not what we're taught. But, well, again, it's like a family. Church is like a family because it is a family. And, and mums and dads, you understand this. If you don't present a united front in your home, what are your kids going to do to you? They're going to play you off one against the other, don't they? That's what they do. And that's why a family, you as a family in your home, you have governing principles that you all agree upon and they direct you. This is what Paul is saying here when he says, speak the same thing. It's got the same idea. As a church, every one of us is not going to agree on every principle or on every point of theology. That's never going to happen. But most certainly we are free because we are family to discuss and respectfully disagree on some things, right? So we don't engage in, in bitter disputes. No, that's, that's not what the church should be doing. But if in humility we respect those disagreements in one another, then guess what? If we do that, I'll say it again, if we in humility respect the disagreements we have with one another, then you know what? You're going to be so surprised to discover, hey, no one actually has a handle on the whole truth. Right? No one. But we must understand, we must understand, or at the same time, do that. Approach one another like that, even though you disagree, you'll be so surprised what you can learn from one another. But when we just simply dig the heels in and put the walls up and declare everybody else to be wrong and on the outside, no, we're never going to learn anything, are we? So there's a place... There's a place for respecting one another's differences. There's a place for learning from one another because we do that. But we understand we must present a unified front at the same time. 
So as Christians, there are governing principles of, uh, that guide us as a church. You know, there are the governing principles of, 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 of God's love, his forgiveness, his acceptance. And certainly they're the, the non-negotiable truths of salvation, of the lordship of Jesus Christ, the fact that we live in a, com- a Christian community and Christ's message and mission to this world. These are the guiding principles that we agree on as a body of believers that unite us together and they strengthen us and they move us in a unified direction. And if we recognize the difference, you know what that, you know what that means? Yeah, simple message this morning. You know what that means? It means that we are going to be seeking fellowship one another. It means that we're going to be seeking deeper friendships with one another. It means we're going to be learning from each other. It means we're going to be building one another up. And it means we're not going to be running each other down. It means we're not going to be running the church of Jesus Christ down. That's my message this morning. Remember, the Spirit of God leans in our direction today and says this is of the utmost importance. Speak the same things, that there be no division amongst you. Be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgments. The plea is come together instead of moving apart. That's who we are to be. Again, what did that word join together mean? It meant knit together. And so this is where, this is where it, it, we need to put our feet to this. It means to repair So I'm going to ask you this morning, do you need to repair some relationships? It means to mend the same thing, to restore, to set at right. And it's all governed by what? To be persuaded in your heart and mind that this is the type of person that God wants you to be. Do you believe that? Well, guess what? That means get up. You know, we're going to share around the communion table now. And the communion table is about remembering the incredible gift of God's salvation. It's remembering the price that God has paid that you might be forgiven of your sin. It's remembering the incredible value that God places upon your heart upon your lives, upon your eternal destiny. It's remembering that God has set his love upon you, which must cause us to stop and think. God has set all of this upon every single one of us. Every single one of us. Isn't it easy to to cradle this to ourselves. God loves me. God is with me. God will keep me. God will provide for me. God's watching over me. What's the common, common word in each of these statements? It's me, isn't it? But the truth is God is watching over us. 
God is keeping us. God is guiding us. God loves us. God is nurturing us. Isn't that a beautiful word, us? How does he do that? How does he guide us? How does he keep us? How does he nurture us? How does he provide for us? He does that in us because we are us. We're not one standing alone in this world. We are us, the body of Christ. So can I ask you again, is there work of repair that needs to be done? Is there mending of relationships that has to happen? Do you need to restore a broken relationship, something that you've walked away from and you know you shouldn't have? Are there things that need to be set right between you and other people right now? And do you know in your heart and mind that this is the person that God, that Jesus Christ, your Savior, wants you to be? And if you know, and if you know that and that needs to happen, then you're going to do it because you want to be who God wants you to be. This cup in your hands, this piece of bread in your hands represents the very power of God to save you and to transform you. The very power of God to work in your life and to make you the very best version of you that you can be. And Jesus says, do this as often as you, what? As often as you do, do this in remembrance of me. So right now, as you take these emblems, realize that they represent the very best version of you because the very best of God has been given for you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. Lord, we praise you with all our hearts and Lord, we want to honour you with all our life. Lord, we want to bow down before you in all humility. Lord, we want to acknowledge our poverty of spirit this morning. That without you, we can do nothing. But in you, all things are possible. And I know, Father, the most important thing to you is family. And I pray, Father God, that you would strengthen this family. And if there is work that needs to be done, oh, Father, move our hearts in that way. Thank you, Father, for the body that was lifted up on that cross for us. Thank you, Holy God, the very bread of life that lives in us and through us perfecting us, drawing us nearer unto yourself and, Lord, nearer to one another. Let's take this bread together. Thank you. And we thank you for the cup, Lord. Reminded of your blood shed for us for the remission of sin. Thank you for forgiveness, Lord. Thank you, Father, for cleansing us of all unrighteousness. Thank you for purifying our hearts, Lord. Thank you for seating us in heavenly places. Oh, thank you, Lord. 
In Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen.